leg time. We'll start with bad, then we'll go good. I prefer, always prefer to end with good. So being an intersex person, people don't usually understand what intersex is all about. My art practice has been exploring the intersection of being Aboriginal and queer. Our community, again, respecting our elders enough to fight for it, and that's pretty bestest. Best Day, Worst Day is a podcast where I get to know a bit more about some of the LGBTIQA plus artists and activists I've been really inspired by. I ask them to tell me about a good time they've had and a bad time they've had, and what, if anything, they've learned from those experiences. Their answers have always been fascinating. Just being able to make... That was, that was probably one of the best things I've ever done. This is the first time in a very long time that we won. Who's doing anything in this era? This peer support project is supported by the Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network, Vic Health, and a proud part of Brimbank City Council's Work for Victoria Artists in Residency. This project touches on many topics like suicide, loss of loved ones, poor mental health, and experiences of hospitalisation. I don't know whether to call it major breakdown. Maybe that's the worst. <laughs> for a whole year, I was in terrible grief, and I did a lot of advocacy from that grief. Best Day, Worst Day, a podcast made in NAM on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to episode three of Best Day, Worst Day. It's taken me a little bit of a while to get episode three up, so thank you for your patience. And it will be rewarded with a wonderful episode where I interview Tony Briffer. Tony is the Intersex Committee Chair and a board member of ILGA World, a co-executive director of Intersex Human Rights Australia and president of Intersex Peer Support Australia. Tony is also a fourth term city councillor and former mayor in Hobsons Bay. And Tony is the first out intersex person elected to public office in the world. My name is Tony Briffer. I am an intersex person and queer person. I am very proudly a Western suburbs person in Melbourne. I think the West is just so underrated by a lot of the LGBTI community. Also a city councillor, fourth term, I can't believe it. I am 50 years old, married. My wife and I got married in New Zealand when they introduced marriage equality and we didn't inherit here. My life's pretty much an open book. I'm very out as being an intersex person. I'm also one of the co-executive directors of Intersex Human Rights Australia and president of Intersex Peer Support Australia. I'm actually quite proud of who I am and what I am and where I came from. So I was born here in Altona in Melbourne's West and where I now represent as a councillor. But my parents migrated separately when they were very young from Malta. They're both from separate villages in Malta. Mum's from a place called Hazabar and Dad's from Halasha in Malta. I've been to Malta a number of times. I'm a dual citizen. I really wouldn't, wouldn't want to give up my citizenship of Malta. I enjoy going back there and visiting my relatives and also proudly Australian. Yeah, so it's nice being a citizen of the world. And I work in aviation, so I do travel a fair bit and get to know communities all around the world and love that. When I was first selected in first selected council in 2008, so 12 years ago, back then I, I didn't think that I'd get much support from the Maltese community being queer. So being, you know, an intersex person, people don't usually understand what intersex is all about, but they usually think that it's about being trans, being a lesbian, but most people think that I'm, I'm gay or something like that. So that's fine. So I didn't think the community would really support me, but none of that matters. They, they just 
absolutely lovely, very supportive. The most important thing to them is that I am Maltese. And incidentally, uh, people tell me that I've got a Maltese background and I keep telling people or correcting them that I don't have a Maltese background. Maltese is part of who I am now. You know, it, it is part of me. I am Maltese and I am Australian, even though obviously I was born here. I've spent most of my life here. I'm very passionate, very loyal to, to Australia. But yeah, I'm both Maltese and Australian. had to ask about Maltese food. The Maltese ravioli, the Maltese ravioli. Absolutely love that. It is vegetarian and oh, yeah, it's it's really good. It's the ravioli is filled with ricotta instead of meat, so really like the Maltese ravioli. <laughs> I was also really keen to get Tony's insights on what it's actually like to be a local councillor. I love being, see, it's funny, I, I say council, a bit in my mind, I'm saying community representative. And that's how I take my role. So I've been a community representative of Hobson's Bay since 2008, and I love being able to serve and helping my community and fighting and doing whatever I have to, to to get improvements in our local area, supporting them where I can, supporting local business and community groups. It gives me great satisfaction when I see something that's done that I either instigate or see through. See a local park or a local park improvement, or even a poster in a community centre that has all sorts of family dynamics. So it includes gay and lesbian families and things like that. I, it's lovely. It's it's such an honour and a privilege to serve the community in this way. And wow, they've given so much to me over the years. It's it's nice to be able to contribute and give something back. If I drive around and walk around the municipality, I, I see my influence in lots of things. So whether it's the beautiful Altona Beach, whether it's the people street shopping precinct whether it's footpaths it's so funny i just go around and i can see or a park being saved council was trying to sell a park a number of years ago when we thought that from being sold off so that was paisley park back in before i was on council this is how i actually got started in council in 2002 the council were proposing to sell off part of paisley park in altona north to the muslim community so they could build a mosque and i fought that because the park is a park and it's already developed as a park it shouldn't just be you know sold off so we worked with the muslim community to assess different sites around hobson's Bay for their mosque while saving the park and we did exactly that we saved the park we identified a a site for their mosque they've built that mosque now we assisted them through that process I've been to that mosque I think it's a win-win situation it's great for the Muslim community and great for the community in that we also saved the park. As I was involved in a local campaign to save Footscray Park a couple of years ago I was very keen to hear all this from Tony. It's interesting when they think that you know a park somehow is undeveloped land and it's like well no, it's not. And the councillors at the time even put up pictures at a council meeting showing how badly this park was maintained and how it you know, really needs to be sold off. And I'm thinking, well, actually, you're just putting a case of how the councillors neglected the park and how you need to put in some love. So that's exactly what we did. And the park's looking great. And actually, the, the mosque and the Muslim community are very happy as well. They've got a really beautiful mosque there. And then I highly recommend people to go to see it. I asked Tony what his favourite part of Hudson's Bay was. It will always be the Altona foreshore, always. That's where I go to reflect. And I mean, I love the natural environment, but it's also the connection with history. I think about my grandmother and uncles and aunts and, and everybody else and school friends. So, so much history there because I was born in, in Altona, only about 200 metres maybe from the, the beach there. It's just such a beautiful place. I, I love it. When my father was diagnosed with prostate cancer a number of years ago, and that's the first place I went just to go and just reflect. And even when I signed my nomination forms for council, I typically go to the Altona foreshore and I know that sounds really pathetic. 
pathetic, but I go there to sign my form usually, when, well, at least when it was hard copy. It's just such a special place for me. I asked Tony what it felt like to be known as the world's first intersex mayor. Before I became the world's first intersex mayor, I was the world's first intersex deputy mayor and the world's first intersex councillor and public official and all that sort of stuff. But none of that sort of registered until I became mayor. And once I became world's first intersex mayor, my God, the like my website went crazy. I had like quarter of a million hits within the first couple of weeks of becoming mayor. And... Um, you know, media requests from everywhere. And it was just sort of crazy. So I, I just became mayor and it wasn't even a, something that I aspired to be. It was just something that sort of happened. I wanted to become a community representative and then one thing led to another and I became deputy mayor and then mayor. I just want to serve. So it, and it didn't really matter that I was intersex. It was nice that it did raise some awareness of intersex, but, but most people still are very confused about what intersex actually is and, and they do think that it's about being non-binary or at least a non-binary sex or a non-binary gender or being trans. They don't really realise what intersex is. I asked Tony about pronouns. Pronouns. I prefer... It's actually quite a triggering question for me, I must admit, and for, well, for a number of intersex people. And that's because... From the very moment I was born, that was almost like the first question. It was like, well, what is what, what is this baby? Is it a girl or a boy? And really, that's what people are asking when they say, well, what pronouns do you use? It's, are you a boy or a girl? Or how do you self-identify and all that sort of stuff? For me, I am what I am. And I try to just accept what label people want to put on me, particularly for my public life and work life. In my private life, however, I'm married to a woman. She's a lesbian female body, even though I might sound like a man and I might look like a man. I've got androgen sensitivity syndrome and I've got partial form of that syndrome. My pronouns, I prefer people to call me Tony or they, them, she, her, whatever. Like, But I mean, some countries, it's like, well, whatever's safest for me. I don't mind being he or she or, or whatever, if that gets me through the gates and through just being safe. I asked Tony about their experiences with marriage equality. I got married in 2013 in New Zealand because New Zealand had marriage equality then. So in Australia, we could have married. Being an intersex person, I actually wrote to the Attorney General at the time and said, well, I've just gotten engaged to a woman and my birth certificate has no sex on it at the time. Who can I marry? Because at the time, marriage was between a man and a woman, and that was it. And of course, according to my birth certificate, I was neither a man or a woman. So the Attorney General wrote back, or the department wrote back, and they just said, well, easy, we'll make you a male and <laughs> give you. And then you can marry your wife. And I'm like, hang on, hang on. Thanks, but no thanks. So I, I wasn't going to have a, an administrative sex change, if you like, just to be, be able to marry in this country. So I just kept that as it is, and we went to New Zealand where two people can get married irrespective of what their sex or gender is. So that's what we did. And then, of course, it became legal once marriage equality in this country was recognised, then our marriage was recognised as well. I asked Tony if they were happy to share a little bit about their experiences with having an intersex variation. When I was born in Altona, so the doctors weren't sure that I was male or female. They thought probably female because I had a female body, but I had these, well, they could feel that I had either a hernia or, or something inside my groin. And on examination at the Royal Children's Hospital, they, they decided that, yes, well, I, I was more female than male, but I had some male or typical male sex characteristics. So I had internal testes, for example. 
so I was raised as a girl. That was all good. My name was Antoinette originally, and eventually I'll go back to that name. I'm using Tony as a name because it's just easier. It just people can then see me as whatever they like. I went through a lot of surgeries and hormonal interventions and all that sort of thing as a as a, oh, as, a as a baby, as an infant, as a child, as an adolescent. But also the lies and things. So doctors really, it was undoubtedly conversion therapy in every sense. They tried to convert me from an intersex person to a non-intersex girl, really, more than anything else. So part of that included the surgeries, included hormonal intervention, all without my consent, all as, as a young child. And lies. So they continued to lie to me and try to brainwash me that, you know, I was this straight girl. And then I guess I never was able to swallow that story, that lie that they gave me. So then in my 20s, I went to try to find out more information. And thankfully, the internet happened and I found out the true background, I guess, of having androgen insensitivity syndrome. I got a copy of all my medical records from the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne and went through and discovered what had actually happened to me, how I was born. And I just wanted to be myself. I wasn't ashamed of how nature made me, and I didn't think I was an error. At first, I thought, well, maybe I was supposed to have been a man and, you know, failed, and that's why I became, you know, female, because I'm also 46XY, which is a typical male chromosomal pattern. So I underwent this journey of trying to live a life as a male, and I changed my birth certificate to say male, and I changed my name initially to Anthony, actually. And after a few years of that, I actually realised that, you know, that's not what I was supposed to be either. I biologically, naturally am a person of mixed sex characteristics, of mixed sex. And let's not say other intersex people are, but certainly in my case, I am. I am a combination of male and female biologically. And I don't really understand gender. Like, I don't really have this great sense of, oh, my gender is female or my gender is male. I just am what I am by virtue of my, who I am, how I was raised, what my body says that I am. So, yeah, I'm quite comfortable just accepting that it's not that I should have been male and failed. I should have been what I am, and that is a person with a mostly female body that is an intersex person that has a combination of sex characteristics from both that are both typically male and female. And that's okay. And I was okay the way that I was. I certainly wasn't sick. Doctors should not have intervened. They should not have abused me. They should not have done all the things that they did to me without my consent. Life is okay and I can be accepted the way that I am and I don't have to try and fit into a neat box of male or female to get through society and to have a relationship, to have family and things like that. So yeah, I've come full circle. It was a long journey to get there. I'm I'm now 50 years old and I'm now finally in a place where I'm more comfortable about who I am, what I am. I asked Tony what they'd like to see from the community in terms of support to people with intersex variations. I'd love for the community to have more of an understanding of intersex. People love to say, especially conservative nut jobs that you know, have this confected outrage about trans people and, and their bodies and how they can't transition and, oh, you know, children shouldn't be able to have cross hormones and all that sort of stuff. Well, none of them yeah, actually care about intersex children. I had my gonads and my genitals modified as a child, as a baby, as a, you know, as a seven-year-old even. I was castrated. I was given hormonal interventions. None of that was done with my consent. None of that was done because it was medically necessary. All of that was irreversible. None of that was done with consideration of my own human rights. And yet, if I was a trans person, so if I was a person born with a body that wasn't intersex, 
none of that would have been able to happen. There would have had to be a court decision made about, you know, what interventions can happen because my body and my rights would actually be protected. That sounds horrible because that's not actually what happens with trans people. But none of that could actually happen to a non-intersex person. And yet for intersex people, our rights are not respected and these things happen as a matter of course. And they still happen today. I'll get sick when people tell me, oh, no, but that was something in the past. No, it still happens today. And even if we look at the Crimes Act in Victoria, well, all Crimes Acts across Australia, they're talking about female genital mutilation. The provisions for female genital mutilation actually specifically exclude surgeries on intersex people. So it's like all genitals are protected, but if they're intersex, well, the doctors can go for it. That shouldn't be the case. Yes, there should be legislation in place to protect the human rights of intersex children. If there's no medical need for the interventions, then they should be deferred until that child can provide consent. It is just as simple as that. It's not controversial. Politicians should know that it's not controversial. When we discuss this, even with conservative Christian leaders, any faith for that matter, they support us. They support us. This is not remotely controversial. So I do implore politicians around the country, um, and in particular Victoria, where I live, to introduce that, that legislation to protect us, just as they've introduced legislation to protect LGBT people from conversion practices, they should protect intersex children from the conversion practices that we experience in hospital. And then, of course, I got on to asking Tony about a bad day. So to think about worst day or days or times of my life, the one big one that sticks out for me is when a dear friend and former partner of mine was diagnosed with cancer and subsequently succumbed to it. She was 36 when she died, 34 when she was diagnosed. And that time of my life, look, that was really difficult to watch her go through that. I'm choking up just thinking about it now. And that was 10 years ago this year. She was an exceptionally bright, bubbly, carefree, happy person. And we're very close. And it was just horrible. And her name was Zena. So she was a warrior princess. She went from this really energetic, strong, bubbly person. She was always bubbly, even in her last days. It probably took me all of that time up until about two weeks before she passed away to actually realise that she was actually going to die. But I didn't think she was going to succumb to cancer, but certainly she did. Losing Zena was probably undoubtedly the worst. Other challenging times as an adolescent as well, when I was trying to work out what the hell I am and where I fit into the world, because everything was just so male and female and straight. That was really challenging. So at school, and I went to an all-girls Catholic school, I didn't really socialise. I didn't go to any of the socials or formals or anything like that. And I just threw myself into study and music. And I firmly believe that it was the music that made me survive that time. And then in my 30s, when I was just trying to discover who I am and went through the whole, you know, Antoinette to Anthony to Tony. And I was very lucky to have been working for Defence at the time. Doesn't sound right, but Defence were fantastic to me. Just going through that whole thing of, of how I fit into the world. And I'd very much given up on having relationships because to have relationships in most parts of the world, even on online dating apps and stuff, you need to be male or female and you need to be looking for someone that's male or female. And I really felt like I couldn't tick that box about being male or female. So that was a hard time. It was good that I ended up just focusing on my community work, my intersex human rights activism. And it was actually through my work on council and being an LGBT activist that I met my wife. 
And that was good. I fought that for quite a while. And I, I really did give her a hard time in the early years of our relationship because I, I, I don't know, I felt like I probably didn't deserve one and couldn't do one. But here we are. It's now 10 years after I, I met her at a gay and lesbian event that I was hosting as deputy mayor at the time in Newport. That was probably the worst times of my life. At the time that Zena died, my focus very much was on ensuring that all of her wishes were carried out and that her partner was protected and supported. So her partner is a dear, wonderful woman, Mandy, and Zena was Greek Orthodox. So everything of organising the Greek Orthodox funeral, my, my big fat Greek funeral, Pretty much just focus on that and understanding what those requirements are because I, I'm not, I mean, I'm Catholic, I didn't understand those requirements and they have specific requirements about having like a ceremony up to three days and, and all of that until the, the funeral happens. And then there's a 40 day memorial as well. Just supporting Mandy and making sure that she was protected. The, the laws don't really treat a same sex widow the same as a heterosexual widow. And for that matter, it's not just the law, it's also society. Like when my wife, also a widow, and when her wife died, my wife's teacher, her school basically told everyone that my wife's friend had died you know, rather than, you know, her, her wife. It was it was very much treated differently. And, that, and I didn't want that to happen for Mandy, so I was just fiercely loyal and, and protective of Mandy and of Zena. So I just wanted to make sure that so everything from the funeral to the grave, Zena was buried in the spot where she wanted to be buried, in the cemetery that she wanted to be buried. I had a discussion with her before she died and showed her photos and video of where she's going to be buried. Yeah, it was just look, it was a really, really difficult time, but um, I guess I wouldn't have it any other way. And I'm glad that I was there for Zena and Mandy for that matter. Even about four days before she died and when doctors told her that there's nothing they can do and that it's going to happen and the decision, her decision not to resuscitate, even that was a beautiful moment. Like we, we, we had a chat about it and we held each other and, and comforted her. That was beautiful. But other beautiful memories, things like Christmas. I've never seen anybody so happy and excited. <laughs> excited about Christmas actually at Easter she had she loved all the Greek traditions of boiling Easter eggs and dyeing them I should say and then having the competition of whose Easter egg doesn't break and all the other Greek foods around that like Ditsureki and things like that so many beautiful memories of her and then there's other private ones like our first kiss and all that sort of stuff but you know Actually, even the first time I met her, I remember that. I remember our first hello as well. She was a, an amazing person, and it's sad to think that she, it's almost 10 years now since, since she passed. We were both working at Ants in Australia. We're both engineers, and female engineers are few and far between <laughs> in, in aviation, so we all try to, as much as possible, help each other and support each other. So I was a few years ahead of her, so when she started, I used to always make a point of introducing myself to the new female engineers, and we just hit it off because she was also, you know, so she's Greek, I'm Maltese. We have the same funny sense of humour. We just hit it off straight away. We instantaneously connected and we just became friends straight away. She would find lots of different things funny because I just, I'm just a bit of, oh, I do play jokes. And she, <laughs> she was always more of a, of a good girl than I was. So if I say something bad, she would always mischievous naughty and funny at the same time and so she ended up first met her obviously I didn't realize she probably didn't know her sexuality either so then you know introduced her to the queer community and whatever we just had a ball we just we're just dags I mean we're just daggy
Look, the biggest support was actually from Zina's partner. It was funny, I was supporting her, but at the same time, she was supports me. Zina had an amazing friendship group as well. So I guess we just supported each other and spoke about things, spoke about Zina, shared our memories, and we're just always a phone call away. I mean, even now, we I could call Mandy and others. And actually, and I hope Facebook doesn't hear this, but even Zina's Facebook page is still open. It has to be memorialised. So even just things like going back on there and sending her a message, which I know that sounds really stupid, but I do go often go in there and you know Christmas Christmas morning Merry, Merry Christmas or if I go to a place and I think think of her and I think you know, I could be in in Myanmar at a beautiful pagoda somewhere and I put gold leaf on a Buddha and say a little prayer and just send her a little send her a little photo and tell her that I'm thinking of her she's certainly always in my memory and in my heart it was funny how like none of the intersex stuff mattered to her she loved me no matter what and Certainly her passing, you know, at the age of 36 just made me realise how sh- how short life is. I mean, I already knew that because when I was in hospital as a child, I'd be in there all the time with children that were very sick, obviously, and, and some that died. Someone like Zena, who, who wasn't sick, who was very strong, very healthy, very, very vibrant, to just be a go like that just makes you realise how fragile life is and how you just need to, to make the most of the time that we have. We always know how, how much time we have behind us, but not in front of us. This could be the last year or the last week of our life, so we just need to make the most of it. That's really the main message from all of that. I bottled it in a lot and just went on with life. 2011 was the worst year of my life because that was the year Zena died, and then three months after Zena died, I was elected mayor. So it was quite a crazy, busy time, but I remember in 2012... I was mayor, I'm at a cancer fundraising thing, and I'm making a speech as the mayor. I'm making a speech, the Attorney General's standing right next to me on stage, I'm local MP, and and I'm on stage making a speech, and oh my god, halfway through the speech, I lost it. I just looked ahead of me, in front of me, in the crowd, and there were these three people wearing sashes that had cancer survivor written on it. And as much as professional, I try to keep going with my speech, I couldn't help but think, I wish Zena was one of them. I wish she was wearing that bloody sash. And it also just reminds me that when people tell me how, you know, they beat cancer because they were so strong and they fought it and whatever, Zena fought it. You know, Zena fought it. It's not that she was just unlucky. She fought it every step of the way and she wanted to live and she tried all sorts of things to, I mean, she went to Helsinki to do some pretty radical therapies and whatever to try and, and beat this thing, but she was just unlucky. And these cancer survivors are lucky, so... Zena was brave, brave, brave to the to the hilt. She was just unlucky and she didn't survive, but it's no reflection on her her not fighting it or not being brave. She was brave as hell. Despite how emotional and whatever I've been discussing the bad times, my life has been punctuated with so many great things and full of great things. Everything from my family, having an awesome family, I was very blessed to my wife, former partners, including Zena. They're wonderful days. Getting married in New Zealand was an amazing day. Having my foster children, the, the first day that they moved into my house, that was a wonderful day. Being elected mayor, that was just an absolutely amazing day that prized me. <laughs> Never really aspired or thought that I'd ever become mayor. Meeting other intersex people, that's another you know life-changing thing, and meeting other new intersex people over the last 
35 years that I've been meeting intersex people. Period in my 20s when I came out as a lesbian and we actually had a very vibrant LGBT community here in Victoria In and it was amazing time. It was It's a bit sad now that all these our community is so connected online whereas back in the 90s it was in the physical space which was lovely. I really enjoyed all of that. It was an amazing and it was a fun time. And of course working in aviation the privilege that I have travelling around the world meeting people in different cultures and different religions just learning about them and their way of life and their history it's just an absolute delight the year before COVID was 2019 I was had the fortune of being anywhere from Myanmar and Moscow and Indonesia it's just I've been to West Papua it's just meeting people from around the world of different lived experiences is an, is an absolute blessing and a delight I love that as well and I very much look forward to having more of those opportunities after the pandemic. I asked Tony to tell us a bit more about one of the really good times in their lives. So as an intersex person, especially with my variation and what interventions I had, I couldn't have children. So I wanted to adopt children, but... Adoption is very, very difficult in Victoria. And I was on a waiting list for some years. Actually, I was on a waiting list to be on a waiting list. It was just so pathetic. So I ended up deciding at the age of 25 to try and fostering. So I looked into fostering and went through that approval process. Then I was 26 and at the age of 26, got my first two foster children with my ex-partner and he and I fostered these awesome children, two of them, a boy and a girl, their brother and sister. It was only intended to be uh, respite care, so one weekend a month at that time, but things happened and they needed a place to live permanently. They wanted to come to us. We wanted them to come to us as well. And it was amazing. We ended up becoming a family. So it was funny how that worked out so beautifully. And we, you know, we always made sure that they had access to their biological mother and a relationship with her and their siblings. But they lived with us and we were their parents. And they went to the local schools. And it wasn't something that I thought I'd ever become a parent, but there you go, we, we became parents. And now, I'm, sadly, I'm out of touch with my daughter and I hope one day she, she will make contact but there's a challenging dynamic there and, and she's going through her own difficult times I understand but my son he still lives locally he's now married uh, he and his wife had a child four months ago my beautiful granddaughter her name is Alyssa and they are extremely happy and I'm just so happy for them and it's lovely for us so it's lovely they were here for Christmas day and we see them all the time and yeah and he's what turning was that 29 at the end of this week so it's wonderful it's, it's one of those things where I would even foster again if it weren't for the Department of Human Services they are an absolutely horrible to deal with as a foster carer but the kids make it worth it and, and I'm, I'm really amazed I guess I'm still still surprised that I somehow became a parent through the fostering system went shopping I <laughs> redid their bedroom you know with all new beds and sheets and blankets and lamps and you know all that sort of stuff and it was it was like I went through a pregnancy in a matter of weeks and got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old instantaneously it was um <laughs> it was I was excited I was extremely excited and I always just treated them like they were my own I, I didn't treat them like they were foster children and that was the issue that I had with the Department of Human Services they would just treat us as a carer as a babysitter and they would even keep us out of the loop when it came to things about our children and it's like you know they're our kids don't you know they would speak to the school about them and not let me know and then the school would let us know and when the school would say to them did you speak to Tony about this and, and DHS would tell them oh no but they're she's only the foster carer and the school 
would tell me that that's what they said. You know, it's just they're a complete. <laughs> yeah, it was, they were just very unpleasant to deal with. Love the kids, love them. Didn't like the kids, but they're always going to be my kids, I guess. And I'm pleased that we were able to be together as a family. And it's so funny because obviously he's not, my son is not biologically Maltese. You know, he knows a few Maltese words and he likes Maltese food and, <laughs> and he's married to a Maltese woman. So it's, <laughs> it's quite nice. The very fact that my son, for example, is a well-adjusted 29-year-old man, beautiful father, lovely husband, who has a secure job, who works hard. That's a huge pride to me, that he was someone who was a ward of the state, and here he is today making the most of life, and I'd like to think that I helped contribute to, to that. My daughter, she had lots of opportunities. She went to the same Catholic, private Catholic girls' school that I went to. She went, went to university you know not many foster children get to do that she does have a good head on her shoulders she is a smart woman and look i hope she she gets things sorted out in her life and i hope that we can have a relationship again but i'm proud of both of them and like to think that i helped in some way towards the people that they are today they make me proud all the time you know i'm proud of chris when i see him with his daughter and his wife and he's just so ecstatic he's beyond happy about being a father i'm thrilled i'm just so so happy for him I remember taking <laughs> taking Chris to a Pride March. I was thinking at the time that if DHS saw me take him to a Pride March, he'd freak out. But he loved marching at Pride March. And for whatever reason, he preferred being with Seahorse than with my own group. That's okay. <laughs> he had a ball. And I've taken him to Oxford Street when he was a kid from went to Sydney. Probably shouldn't have told you that because technically I couldn't have taken him out of the state. But anyway... Um, <laughs> As I said, I just tried to treat them like they were my own children. Community upon community. So Hobson's Bay community has been amazing. There's that community, there's a Maltese community, the intersex community, LGBT community. There's just so many different communities that I'm very lucky to be a member of. And it's a wonderful life. Love makes a family. It's not chromosomes or genetics. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Best Day, Worst Day. And we'll be back sooner than last time to present episode four, which will be with Susan Mako Forrester. Since recording that episode, Victoria has announced that steps to prioritise self-determination and improve health choices for people with intersex variations will be made in the state of Victoria. You can check out a new community paper titled I Am Equal which has just been released earlier this week. Thank you to Tony for their ongoing advocacy in this space. See you next time.